0: We're seeing in the overall saga of Joseph the redeeming power of perseverance and forgiveness. If Joseph held a grudge, none of these good things would be happening now. His brothers had sold him into slavery, assuming the Egyptians would work him to death, and through a, a series of many amazing events, he ends up being the prime minister of Egypt in the middle of a of a famine that God allowed him to foresee, and he's prepared the nation for Um, And so we're emphasizing that as Christians, we're going to face some famines in our lives, some dry spells, and we need to persist in trusting and obeying the Lord and forgiving folks around us and resting in the sovereign providence of God. And today, in our passage, I want to emphasize the relationship of the providence of God in your life, if you're a Christian, on a daily basis So let's start by defining providence. Providence, God's sovereign providence, is the fact that as an expression of his sovereignty, God works within his creation in real time all the time to manage everything that happens according to the immutable counsel of his own will. We have, and and by the way, so we're going to say that everything that happens Big, little, seemingly secular, seemingly spiritual, good, bad, ugly, and beautiful. Everything that happens ultimately goes back to God and his providence. But God has a different moral relationship with good than he has with evil. Okay, So we're not blaming God morally for evil, but we dare to believe he permits evil ultimately to produce much greater goods. And we have this... Several times repeated in the Joseph saga, most memorably at the very last chapter, chapter 50, where after the dad, Jacob dies and the brothers look at Joseph and think, now he's going to get back at us. He was nice to us because dad was still around earlier, but he says, hey, don't worry guys, you intended this for evil, but God intended it for good. And Tim, that's because of God's providence. God's providence is an expression of his sovereignty that means he works in real time all the time to manage all things according to his immutable the immutable counsel of his will so let me ask you a question if um, god is at work orchestrating all things that will happen in us around us and through us according to the counsel of his will can't you quit your job tomorrow and then two weeks later expect a paycheck to materialize on your kitchen counter? I don't think so. Do you see that in the Bible? Uh, I don't think that you're going to see that in your life either. Uh, Romans 8.28 is a New Testament verse that teaches about the providence of God. God caused God, not the Southern Baptist Convention or Tanglewood Bible Fellowship or any preacher including me. God causes all things, the little, the big The significant, the seemingly insignificant, the spiritual, the secular, the good, the bad, and the ugly. God causes all things to work together for good. That does not teach that all things are good. Murder is not good. It does teach that God works all things together for good like a mosaic. Okay, now let me give you an illustration. If you look at the screen. Is that a work of art? Now... I know modern art will look at anything and say that's a work of art, right? But that's not really a work of art, right? And I want you to focus on that top dark piece there that's kind of horizontal. In fact, we can only see three pieces now, and we can't really make sense of the whole, but here's what the whole thing looks like. Is that a work of art? Is that a work of art? You see... In my worst moments, when really traumatic things happen to me, I can see three things or 33 things or maybe think I'm aware of 300 things that relate to this. But from God's perspective, there are billions and billions of factors. He's thinking about generations to come and before. He's putting it all together. And when we're second-guessing God based on limited information, God's in the midst of doing something like that in the believer's life. And that's why I say, hey, when you can't see God's hand, you've got to trust his heart and his character. And a big part of that is daring to believe in the providence of God, that everything that happens is according to the immutable counsel of his will. And we're going to talk about how that works in the Christian life as we look at our passage today in the life of Joseph, chapter 46, 31 through 47, 26. But uh, before we dive in, Let's uh, pray that we'll be teachable to this portion of God's word. We're going to dare to believe this text that was inspired and has been preserved. is designed not just to give us information, but transforming truth as you move it from your head to your heart. Involving not just your intellect, but your volition, you know, your will. So this is a spiritual exercise here, Betty's not easy. Betty's in the midst of a very difficult time as she cares for her husband who's in very difficult shape physically. I look around the room. I know some of you are dealing with some issues that are quite difficult. Um, God's trying to get you to trust his providence and to hang in there. And when you feel like you're at the end of the rope, when you feel like you're at the end of your rope, tie a knot in faith and hold on, baby. Okay? Because that's the way all the greats have always done it. And ultimately, you look back, if not on this side, maybe on the other side, and be able to see The Mosaic God was fashioning. There are some scars that that you can accumulate on earth that will not be healed this side of heaven. So heaven's a big part of that. Eternity's a big part of that. But we've got to proceed under the premise, because it's true whether you believe it or not, Tim, that God is working out all the events, all things work together for good, even in our worst moments. And also in our best moments, so don't get too impressed with yourself, right? Let's pray for our teachability to this difficult but essential truth this morning and also for those who protect and serve us military peace officers and firefighters and uh, Steve if you would pray for us in that direction okay thank you David uh, thank you uh, Steve okay after a message on the providence of God an irritated church member walked straight to the pulpit approached the pastor and said, okay, God's in charge of everything. So you're telling me that if it's not God's time for me to die, uh, tomorrow I could drop to Oklahoma City, go to the top of the Devon Tower, jump off, and if it's not God's providential timing for me to die, I would be perfectly fine. Is that what you're telling me? And the preacher kind of shook his head, smiled, and said, if you jump off the Devon Tower tomorrow... It is God's time for you to die. Uh, we're not talking about either or. We're talking about both and. We're going to see Joseph in the midst of God doing some amazing providential things, showing a lot of personal initiative. On Wednesday nights, we're talking about a worthy walk. This is not a, a cause of our salvation. It's an effect of our salvation. And uh, it rests in the providence of God, but it doesn't use that for laziness or sloppiness. Okay. So our passage breaks down this way. just has two parts. First, we're going to see Jacob and family. Jacob's the dad. Joseph and the other guys are the sons. Jacob and family finalize their move from Canaan, the promised land that 400 years later the Jews would go back to, into Goshen, which just happens to be in the, in the Nile Delta. So there is water there in the midst of this otherwise arid uh, seven-year period of famine in the region. And then we're going to see Joseph continues faithfully in his secular job, even after the family, even after he cashes in and the family gets together, he continues as a believer to do a good job for his boss in his secular vocation. Okay, so let's look at verse 30 of chapter, or 31 I should say, of chapter 46. As the family finalizes their move legally and formally, And first, in 31 through 34 verses, we're going to see Joseph prepares his brothers to make this legal before the Pharaoh. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up. He's the prime minister of Egypt, so he interacts with Pharaoh routinely. But now he's going to talk to Pharaoh about legally allowing Joseph's family to move uh, into the area of Goshen in Egypt, I will go up and tell the Pharaoh and say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan, and what we call Israel today, have come to me. It's a done deal. They talked about this in chapter 45. Joseph said, hey, if you'll move, I'll make sure you're able to live okay legally in Egypt. And even the Pharaoh said, okay, that's fine. Let your family move here. There's not legal until you fill out all the paperwork, right? So this is kind of going through the legalities and formally making sure this happened. So Joseph says, hey, you know, Pharaoh, I told you my family is moving. Well, they're here. And uh, we've agreed verbally, but I want to get the official approval for them to live here. Verse 32, and the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock. And they've brought their flocks and their herds and all they have. When Pharaoh calls you brothers to an audience here and says, What's your occupation? Tell him your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth. Even until now, both we and our fathers, Jacob and Abraham, the father and grandfather, did that. So you may live in the land of Goshen where all the water is. For every shepherd is loathsome to the Egyptians. couple of things. Notice, in verse 31, Joseph says, I'm going to go into the Pharaoh, and uh, I'm going to say, hey, they're here. Verse 32, they're shepherds, that is, they're keepers of livestock. We tend to use the word shepherd for people that look at, at uh, flocks of goats or sheep. But in this context, we'll see that here, and then in a couple of verses later, that these terms shepherds or keepers of livestock are overlapping and interchangeable. Notice again in verse 32, Joseph goes to the Pharaoh and says, my brothers are here, they're going to come and legally get your approval to do this. They're shepherds, that is, they're keepers of livestock. He's using those interchangeably, okay, that'll help. And they brought their flocks and their herds, which, what does that mean? That means, among other things, Pharaoh, you're not going to have to provide free health insurance for them. You're not going to have to pay their way. They can sustain themselves as long as they're in Goshen where there's some water. So we're not asking you to do anything for us. We're just asking you to give us kind of a, a safe place to land during the famine here. And that's all the brothers apparently are thinking about. Now, God's got providential plans for a lot longer than just riding out the seven-year famine. But they're shepherds. They're keepers of livestock. Now, livestock, now, I mean, Wendy, you know what livestock is. I asked Zane earlier. Uh, I'm not a farm boy. I'm a city boy, but my grandfather was a farmer in West Virginia. But I think livestock generally refers to cows, bulls, uh, horses, um, mules, donkeys. I thought it included, included pigs, but Zane said it doesn't include pigs. They're in a separate category. And I'm quite sure it doesn't include chickens and turkey. Those are poultry. But basically livestock would be that. And sheep. Okay? I left sheep out, didn't I? Cows, bulls, sheep, horses, donkeys, and goats, I think, would basically be livestock. Is that somewhere close? Oh, good. Okay. So, again, that's what they're talking about here. And look at this. Um, Atlantic Ocean is where the Nile Delta is, and that's important. Because we're in the middle of this famine, but there's always fresh water even through that. The Nile didn't dry up during this famine, but it uh, didn't uh, wasn't at optimum levels for sure. But watch this. It says at the end of that section there, verse uh, 34, For every shepherd, everybody that actually keeps and tends livestock, is loathsome to the Egyptians. The middle and upper class of Egypt looked down at people who had to pick up garbage for a living. No, that's not what it says. Who take care of livestock. Uh, Personally, I don't look down at the people that pick up my garbage. I think they work really hard. And I didn't really notice garbage men, that's what we used to call them, as a kid very much. But as an adult, I mean, a lot of times on my street, they're, for some reason, I'm, we're blessed because like 7.30 in the morning they show up, which is kind of, it's kind of nice. You got to put your thing out the night before, before you forget. But I mean, they're there and gone. I think we're one of the first streets they hit, at least that one truck. But, uh, that, that, that company, man, a lot of times they've just got, a driver and two guys in the back, but sometimes they have one guy in the back and the driver has to get in and out all day long. They'll, you know, empty the garbage cans. And I know there's a mechanism that grabs it, but sometimes they need still need extra pairs of hands. So I, I look I actually admire those guys and I look look up to them actually because they work it hard, man, especially in the summer or when it's really cold. But um I still think probably in some areas of the United States you kind of look people look down at garbage men or people who do that. Well Moses who's writing this Genesis is just telling you, by the way, shepherds, or people that deal with livestock, are loathsome. They were kind of looked down upon. And in fact, we've got archaeological records where the upper crust is making fun of and belittling people that work with livestock, which is one reason they apparently, the Egyptians tried to outsource that kind of work to foreigners anyway. And I think Joseph is saying, "Look, we need water, and also want to be you guys to be a little separate from the very pagan culture. So, if you'll live in Goshen, which actually has the advantage of having some water, but which is considered to be kind of area 51 because in the Egyptian culture, because that, that's where the livestock is, including the pharaohs, you can kind of be separate from some of the temptations. So that's what's going on here. So Joseph prepares his brothers." Now look at verse one of chapter forty seven. The brothers actually meet with Pharaoh after being prepped, and they sealed the deal to live in Egypt. Then Joseph went in, told Pharaoh, and said, My father and my brothers and their flocks, there's the goats and the sheep, and their herds, there's the cows and the bulls, right? Stuff like that. And all they have, and they've come to the land from the land of Canaan, behold, they are here in the land of Goshen. So he took five of the eleven brothers, right? We're not sure which five he takes, Angie. We're not told. I got a feeling Benjamin's probably in on the deal. I bet Judah's one of them, but we'll find out. You can ask him in heaven. Um, why is he always taking five of them? One commentator said, well maybe, uh, Joseph's wanting to pick the three, the five that clean up the best. So they can obviously be no threats, because Pharaoh's thinking: Am I going to have to pay for your room and board and your health insurance? Am I going to you going to be basket cases here, or can you contribute to my culture and my society? And are you going to try to rattle your chains and try to revolt against me or something? So he's taking the five that clean up the best, like Dustin. He cleans up very nicely, you know, doesn't he? (laughs) You know, so I'd take him, I might not take you, because he might think, oh my goodness, you know, you got five, too many people like that, I'd take over the country. But something like that's going on, and that's the kind of little fact that has the ring of truth. You, really, you wouldn't really make that up. Why would you say that if you're making this stuff up? He's just telling you what happened, but we're not told the details. So he takes five of his brothers, formally presents them to Pharaoh so they can legally, formally be accepted, to live permanently legally in Egypt right out the famine and in fact more than that. So he presents them. Verse 3. Then Pharaoh said to the brothers, What's your occupation? What do you do for a living? Now Joseph's already told him, but you always ask, uh it's funny because as I grew up I realized my dad I, I, I always tell lawyers, don't ask anybody in court questions if you don't already know the answers to them. You know, it's a lawyer. But my dad used to ask me questions when he was in town about what's going on here, there, and the other. And I used to think, boy, he was really curious about me. But he really was asking me about stuff I already told my mom about and my mom knew about and already briefed him on. And I think he was just checking to make sure I said the same thing. I think I usually did, or I would have gotten it right on the spot. But it finally dawned on me. He already knew what I was going to say. Yeah, you know, I went out for the baseball team. What do you expect, you know, dad, or whatever? Because um, mom had told him, but he just wanted to hear it from my own lips, so I guess. I guess he thought I'd lie about stuff like that. I don't know. Maybe not. But anyway, yeah. So uh, Pharaoh says to the brother, what's your occupation? And they said, uh, your servants are shepherds, both we and our fathers. They said to Pharaoh, we've come to sojourn. The sojourn means a temporary trip from A to stay at B. And then go back to A. That's typically the base meaning. And they're thinking they're going to write out the famine and a little bit more. But God in his providence has more in mind. Go back to Genesis chapter 15. We're in Genesis 47. Go back to chapter 15. This is part of God interacting with Abraham, his son Isaac, his son Jacob, and then the 12 tribes. And through that comes the Lord Jesus Christ several thousand years later. So we're talking about the line of Jesus here. But look at verse 13. Genesis 15:13, where God is telling Abraham what's going to happen to his line. And we're seeing in the Joseph story what's happening several generations later in Abraham's line. God says to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, Egypt where they'll be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. Well, hold it. They're going down now to ride out the famine. Everything's going to be fine. Yeah, for that one generation and maybe another one. But hold your place there. Go to the next book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 1. The book of Genesis ends basically with the death of Joseph. The book of Exodus, the next book, starts from that point and then jumps 400 years forward. But look what happens at the very beginning of Exodus. Genesis, Exodus, look at Exodus chapter 1. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel, or Jacob, who came to Egypt with Jacob. Israel and Jacob are interchangeable, the same God, different names. They came each one with his household, and he lists the the brothers. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the persons who came from the loins of Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, We're 70 in number. We saw that number last week, how it was computed in the Genesis account later. But Joseph was already in Egypt. He's the prime minister, and he assumes you know that story. Then Joseph died, and that's the end of Genesis, and now he's picking up where he left off. And all those brothers and all that generation. But the sons of Israel, that group of people, over the next several hundred years were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied, they became exceedingly mighty so that the land of Egypt was filled with them. Now, fast forward several hundred years, a new king, a new pharaoh arose over Egypt who didn't know anything about Joseph as the prime minister saving the nation, didn't know anything about these folks coming in legally and formally. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them or else they'll multiply. And in the event of war, they'll join our enemies. They'll fight against us and depart. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor. They made them slaves, in other words. Go back to Genesis 15. He says, hey, for 400 years, they're going to be afflicted. Right? That's what he's talking about there. Okay, let's go back to our story where the brothers are meeting with Pharaoh and legally, formally sealing the deal to live in Egypt. We've come to sojourn in the land of Egypt, for there's no pasture for your servants' flocks for us in uh, Canaan where we live. Now, therefore, please let your servants live in the land of Goshen. Let's make it legally, let's make it formal, let's fill out all the paperwork. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you, and that's a good thing. The land of Egypt is at your disposal. I said it before, I say it now, everything checks out, everything is cool, glad to have them, you know, no problem. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land, the one place where there's actually water, then let them live in the land of Goshen. And if you know any capable men among those brothers, put them in charge of my personal livestock that are also in Goshen. That's where the livestock are, because that's the only place where there's water. Now again, why would Pharaoh be looking for somebody to tend his livestock? Because Egyptian upper crust is too, they own livestock, the culture depends on livestock, but they don't want to touch it. Now, I forgot the percentages now, but we have a very tiny percentage of the United States population that does farm and ranch work. And without farm and ranch work, we got no food. You know? We also have like less than 1% of the folks live, work in the active military, involved in the active military. So, ninety-nine percent of us don't have a direct connection with that, and that's not really good. But you have that same kind of thing here. The Bible is timeless because God doesn't change, and human nature doesn't change. Culture changes, technology increases. Aren't you glad for air conditioning? Praise God for air conditioning. It's great when it works. Don't go to James's office. It's not working in there, but we're waiting for for that. So yeah, these guys are good to go, they can support themselves, they don't need any free government uh, welfare, and the pharaoh officially says, come on in, you're welcome to be here. Now, here's a really cool thing. After that's been settled, now to respect the elder statesman here, Jacob, the, the father of this group, he gets an audience with the pharaoh, thanks to Joseph the prime minister. Look at verse 7 of Genesis chapter 47. Then Joseph brought his father Jacob, presented him to Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Hmm, That's interesting. we got a Hebrew believer that God's going to send the Messiah through them, blessing a pagan guy who could care less. Interesting, right? And yet, Abraham is told, back in Genesis 12, all this stuff later in the Old Testament goes back to Genesis 12, 15, or 17. Look at Genesis 12 which is the beginning, really, of the biblical story in earnest, after we're briefed on creation, fall, flood, and Babel for 11 chapters. Then we start with Abraham in Iraq, being told to go to Israel, and that story begins in Genesis 12. Look at this. The Lord said to Abraham, Go forth from your country. He's living near uh, in Ur the Chaldees, which is near Basra, Iraq today. And from your relatives, and from your father's household, to the land which I will show you, the land strip we call Israel, which many of us were in about just a little over a month ago, Mike. You were in Israel, weren't you? Uh, to the land I'll show you, and I'll make you, your descendants, a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great. I guess he's got a pretty great name because this is 2000 BC. We're in, what, 2019, 4,000 years later, Andrew, here listening to a guy, uh, on a street corner here, uh, Campbell back in 5th, talking about Abraham. So he's got a pretty great name. So that's being fulfilled right here. Uh, and you shall be a blessing. And I'll bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I'll curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed ultimately through Jesus Christ. But notice, you shall be a blessing. You and your family, the Jewish people, will be a blessing. Go back to chapter uh, 47. Here we've got Jacob blessing Pharaoh. He's blessing him personally. He's blessing him spiritually. He's not blessing or approving all of his policies. We're told to pray for human government. And when Paul says that in First Timothy and in Romans, he's talking about a guy running the Roman Empire who I don't think was a born-again Christian. I don't think Nero. Was Nero a born-again Christian? He was a Roman pagan, a really bad, debased dude who actually ended up killing Paul and uh, Peter, actually. Crucified Peter upside down at Peter's request. But he just chopped Paul's head off because Paul was a Roman citizen and they didn't crucify Roman citizens. But when we pray for our leaders, we pray for their personal spirituality. Uh, we don't pray necessarily all their policies. If somebody wants to... Have the government pay for certain procedures that shouldn't be done in any circumstances. And I don't want my tax dollars, myself, going to some of those procedures. I'm not praying those policies will work out. I'm praying against those policies. But we pray for, we bless our leaders. And the rule of thumb, Tim, is always submit, as a Christian, always submit to human authority until or unless it's a direct sin to submit human authority, because God's always at the top of that chain of command, right? So if your boss tells you to lie, cheat, or steal uh, for the company, you just have to say, sorry, sir, I can't do that, right? But if he tells you he wants you to have your shoes polished and be there five minutes early, you probably ought to do that, if you like your paycheck. Now, you could go home and assume the providence of God will materialize paychecks for you on your kitchen counter, but I'm telling you that's bad theology and it probably won't work. So that's just me, okay? Yeah, look at this. So here's this elder statesman. He's 130 years old. He's presented to Pharaoh. He blesses Pharaoh. He says, in the name of the Lord, Yahweh, whose promise he's going to send the Savior through my family line, I pray God's blessing on you. And he's praying for the guy to come to faith. But Pharaoh says to Jacob, how many years have you lived? How old are you, son? You know, something like that. Uh, even though this is a fairly new Pharaoh, he's only been in, 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 position two years at this point himself. So Jacob said to Pharaoh, watch this, this is great. It sounds like what an old person would say. And I'm not, I'm not old. I've decided now that I'm 66, elderly is at least 10 years older to whatever age I'm at now. Okay, so right now, elderly. So Zane, sorry buddy, <laughs> but I got good news for you. Zane, watch this. Zane's going to turn 80 this week. Watch this. How old are you? And Jacob says, uh, The years of my sojourning, that means a short trip from A to B, you know kind of thing. He's thinking he's temporary duty on earth, eventually going to go to paradise. Uh, the years of my sojourning are 130. He's 130 years old at this point. That's pretty good. I guess he must work out or something. I don't know. But uh, 130. And then he says, Few and unpleasant have been the years of my life, nor have they attained to the years of my fathers. His father, Isaac, lived to be 180. And Abraham, his father, or Jacob's grandfather, lived to be 175. So they must be doing something right. Um, nor have my years attained to the years my fathers lived during the years of their sojourning. Now, when he says few, that's relatively speaking. I mean, so Zane, look. You look to me like you're going to live to be at least 120. So, you know, you've got 40 more years to make something happen. But, Tim, you haven't heard this joke, I don't think. But you just I've just about run out of my jokes, okay? Watch this. When I turned 50, which was a long time ago now, because I'm 66, I hate to admit that. If I knew I was going to live this long, I would have taken better care of myself, Donald. But uh, I would have been, like, worked out like David more. But anyway, when I turned 50, and I was kind of bummed out, because that's a round number. It's kind of a shocker. My wife said... Brad, I think you can live to be 100. And I said, thank you, my dear. Why do you say that? Because you look half dead right now. (laughs) But anyway, I'm 130 and I don't like it. It's been too short and it's been tough. Now, next week when we talk about the death of Jacob, 17 years later, he's going to live to be 147. So he's got a lot more time than he thinks he's got we're going to see that at least 90% of his problems that he's whining about were his own darn fault. And that's a pretty high percentage, but he does all kinds of strange things in his life. But he says, hey, how old am I? I'm 130. Few and unpleasant have been years of my life. I'm not going to be as old as my father and my grandfather. And so he blessed the Pharaoh on the way in. Now he's going to leave and he, we read in verse 10, Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out of his presence. And again, He's praying for him spiritually, and God's blessing on him, not just necessarily on all of his policies. He's not checking off on all of that. Bottom line, verses 11 and 12, the family finalizes settling and negotiation. Everything's free and clear. Everything's legal. Everything's above board. And all this, though, is a result of the providence of God working in parallel with a Joseph's grace in receiving his brother's back and also Pharaoh you know this guy's a pagan leader but he's so impressed with his prime minister he's happy to serve and respect his uh, prime minister's family Joseph's family so Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession you know gave him the land tract in the land of Egypt in the best of the land the land, land of Ramesses, also known as Goshen as Pharaoh had ordered Joseph provided his father and his brothers and all his brothers house all his father's household all the wives and the kids, with food according to their little ones. more kids you had, the more food you got. That kind of thing. Wow. Here's a principle about resting in the providence of God. And we see this in this passage. Resting in the providence of God, the fact that everything goes back to His purposes and His plan. Good, bad, ugly, significant, seemingly insignificant. Resting in the providence of God does not dispense with the need for personal initiative. Joseph talks to the pharaoh beforehand, preps his brothers to talk to the pharaoh, goes with them when the brothers talk to the pharaoh, introduces the dad to the pharaoh. Joseph's doing a lot of stuff. It's like that, that beautiful swan that looks so beautiful sitting across the lake until you get a photograph underneath the surface, and that swan is working like mad. Looks like Amber playing that violin. Can you believe you could take this thing under your chin and make music? How do you do that? Did you invent that instrument? It's amazing. I mean, how do you invent a, a violin? I could see kind of the the harp or the lyre or the guitar, but let's stick this under my chin and put a string on it. I mean, that's amazing. Just tuning it would be something I couldn't do. Is tuning it difficult? You got an electronic tuner? Okay, Good. Because I was going to worry about that. That's just the way I am. I'm a, I'm kind of a control freak. So um, Joseph settled his father. Brothers get in possession of the land. It's all good. And we're seeing all of this happening ultimately as a result of the providence of God. The providence of God does not dispense with human initiative, but it allows us to accept our blessings apart from personal pride, and it also allows us to accept our problems and deal with them apart from self-pity, because all things fit together. And uh, a lot of times people say, okay, God's trying to teach me a lesson, right? Yeah. What is it? I have no idea. You may not know what the lesson is. Don't burden yourself with trying to figure out what lesson you're trying to learn. Just... Continue to trust and obey the Lord, and it may be five months later or five years later, or fifteen years later, or your first day in heaven, you say, Aha, that's why this and that happened. Now I'm old enough, I look at some of the more traumatic things that happened to me, like two years in dental school and things like that. It's a long way to get to seminary Just through dental school, not a good idea. <laughs> you know, I can look back and say, Yeah, I did learn some lessons that have helped me. Uh, but at the time I, I, really, I didn't, I couldn't figure out what was going on exactly, what God was trying to show me. Uh, and my pastor said, don't torture yourself with trying to figure that out. Just stay faithful and you'll eventually figure it out. You'll, you, he'll let you know what you need to know. I think that's really important. And also when you actually do something right and people pat you on the head or use something, accomplish something, it's easy to kind of puff out, puff up and drift away. I always say, you know, when bad things happen to Christians, they're tempted to doubt, pout, and drop out. But I call that the adversity test. But sometimes people fail the prosperity test. You get voted national coach of the year or whatever Andrew gets this year. And you might say, hmm, you know, they're kind of lucky to have me as their coach, aren't they? You know, all this happens is the providence of God ultimately. So it kind of can help you from being somebody who has something great happen to you and then you puff up and drift away. You don't really need God. At the end of Proverbs, he talks about that. Don't give me too much or too little. I'm afraid if I don't have enough food, I'll curse you. And if I have too much, I'll think I don't need you. Um, in fact, you're going to go through periods of blessing and difficulties, and it all fits into the program. It all fits in the mosaic goddess, is, is fashioning of your life. Okay, let's move to the second part. Joseph continues faithfully... In his secular vocation, working for this pagan pharaoh and distributing the food that they had stored through the rest of the duration of the famine, even after his family moves to Egypt, you might think he'd want to retire or put his feet up or kind of start coasting. Not at all. We've got, we're looking at the final few years of a national disaster like maybe has never been seen in the United States, although I guess the years of the Dust Bowl would be kind of similar for the people in the Dust Bowl, Right. Where, I mean, you know, just everything dries up and blows away. That's what they're basically looking at for most of Egypt. And we're looking at the last couple of years. So we're going to fast forward to the last couple of years of the seven-year famine as we move to chapter 47, verse 13 and 14. And look what happens. Now, family's moved in. Everything's fine on the home front at Joseph's house, but he still goes to work. Six days a week, and does the best he can for the Pharaoh and for the region. Now, there was no food all over the land of Egypt except for the what 's left in the storage national storage bins that joseph had set up so there 's still enough to kind of dole out this, to ride the thing out, but they grown nothing uh, in the fields other than in Goshen which is where they 're holding the livestock because the, because the famine was very severe seven years and toward the end of that period. So the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan, the whole region, languished because of the famine. Joseph gathered all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the house of Canaan for the grain which they bought. People were coming and now they're spending all their money. All their disposable income is going just to buy food. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. Uh, Pharaoh is getting rich from this deal. But people are happy to pay it because when you literally have nothing in your stomach and the only way you can get it is cash out your bank account, you will do that because the babies and mommy need something to eat, right? Notice... The text is emphasizing Joseph is not skimming off the top. There's no slush fund. He's not overcharging people. All the money they're making is up above board and all going into Pharaoh's house. He owns the government. That's the way it worked back then. This is not a representative democracy. This is a uh, hopefully a benign dictatorship in this case. So everybody's spending all the disposable money uh, to get food. Next chapter. Look at verse 15 through 17. Chapter in this the last couple of years of the famine. When the money was all spent, all over the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan, the region around Egypt, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, "Give us food. We don't want to die. We're we're desperate. This is a natural, natural, national, and a natural disaster of catastrophic significance. Our money is gone. We spent all our money on food. We've got no more money, no denaro." Then Joseph said, "Give up your livestock." They didn't. They looked down their nose at people that took care of livestock, but they all had livestock, indirectly or directly. Um, give me your livestock, and I will give you food for your li- for your livestock in exchange for your livestock. Since your money's gone, so they brought their livestock to Joseph. Joseph gave them food in ex- exchange for their horses, their flocks, and their herds. See the the livestock here includes flocks. See, they're overlapping, interchangeable terms here. And the donkeys, and he fed them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. So I think we're getting into the sixth year of the famine. Now we're going to move into the seventh year. Everything they've owned, all their food, uh, all their money, I should say, and now all their livestock is gone, but they've gotten through that next year. Now let's fast forward to the last year. I'm assuming that in verses 18 through 26. Their freedom for their food in order for they can get enough food to eat. When that year had ended, and we now coming into the next year, the final full year of the famine, I take it, um, the people said, "We will not hide from my lord that our money is all spent, and the cattle we used last year to get food uh, from you, there's nothing left for my lord for us to give you for our food, except our bodies, ourselves, and our lands." Why should we die here before your eyes, both we and our land? Now I gotta admit, I, you know, I've never really been hungry very often in my life. On a couple of Boy Scout hikes, I got kinda hungry. <laughs> we had this, our scout leader should have been a Marine a drill instructor. I mean, this guy was a maniac. It'd be illegal. I always sue him retroactively. You know, he's probably not alive in Birmingham anymore, but it was, it was craziness. But I, I did not serve in the active military, but I did did do one year of Army ROTC, University of Houston, and there were no terrorist attacks that year, so I'm sure that was probably the reason why. But these folks are just out of food, out of money, out of livestock, out of hope. They just got to survive one more year, and is saying, you know, uh, make us serfs. Now, most translations will say we in our land will be slaves, and you tend to think of African Americans picking cotton, and in, in that one of the most War, egregious forms of slavery. This would be more like a feudal system, where now, like in the Middle Ages, most of Europe, you had these regional kings, not really nation-states, that owned everything and the serfs kind of lived and worked the land, but the king provided housing and other stuff for them. It's that kind of thing. But they're so desperate, we'll give you our land holdings and we'll be serfs, we'll be servants, kind of indentured servants to the Pharaoh. So give us seed, which tells you we're near the very end of the famine because next year we'll be able to plant some seed on the land that now you're going to own. Uh, own that we may live and not die so the land will not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. Uh, he's taking in for the government. For every Egyptian sold his field because the famine was severe upon them. Seven years of battling this, now they're out of everything. they got to get through the last year. We'll just give you everything just so we can survive. Thus the land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he removed them to the cities from one end of Egypt's border to the other. So he spreads them out, kind of relocates a bunch of people. Only the land of the priests, the religious leaders, he did not buy. They're exempt from all this. For the priests had an allotment from Pharaoh and they lived off the allotment which Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, he did not sell their land, which among other things says this is not just an out of control land grab. This is a controlled response to a crisis. And you're going to see that would sound kind of rough. I'm not, sure I'm, I'm not sure I want to tell the United States government, you can have my house, my, my land, and make me your you know, servant for the rest of my life. I'm not sure I want to do that, but you can tell these people are actually happy about the status quo because now they're actually going to survive because they're looking at dying if they don't do this kind of thing. Um, we'll see that in verse 25. But pick it up in verse 23. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here's seed for you. You may sow the land as the famine ends. And then we start getting more normative conditions. At the harvest next year, uh, you shall give one-fifth, 20% to Pharaoh. And four-fifths will be your own for seed for the field and for food for those of your household and food for your little ones. Now that's 20% taxation, which sounds kind of high. But the average in the ancient Near East in that time was 33%. So this is actually a fairly reasonable deal. Uh, and again, they're going to be very happy with the, the bottom line here, as you're going to see. So you've got to put it in that context. Verse 25, so they said to Joseph, you have saved our lives. We, thank you. We're very happy to be in his position, considering the natural disaster we're, we're finishing out here. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, in you, Joseph. We will be Pharaoh's servants, or his, his serfs. So Joseph made a statute in the land of Egypt to this day. Moses says, as he writes that editorial comment, uh, Pharaoh should have uh, one-fifth only of the land, but, but the land of the priests did not become Pharaoh's. They go back to that statement, verse 25. They're delighted, and they say to him, You have saved our lives. A nice comment by S. Lewis Johnson was uh, a wonderful teacher of the Word, Dallas Seminary professor. He uh, ministered at a church called Believer's Chapel in Dallas. I heard him preach several times. Um, He's been with the Lord probably 20 years now. But here's what he says about that statement, verse 25. The words of the people to Joseph, you have saved our lives, would seem to have a typical force. Now, a biblical type is kind of a prophetic parallel, okay? Like the Passover lamb was sacrificed for the salvation of the people, and Jesus is called the lamb of God, not because he's got four feet, but because he's kind of, is the one that's spoken of by that type, that prophetic parallel, that sacrificial animal anticipated Jesus. Look at how Joseph, in many ways, is a type, a prophetic parallel, ultimately for what God's going to do for us in Jesus. Uh, S. Lewis Johnson says, as I see, reading the text, these Egyptians crowding around Joseph with these words upon their lips, you have saved our lives. It makes me think of him of whom Joseph was but a type, but a prophetic parallel. Think of Joseph. He lay in the pit when his brother threw him in the pit back in chapter 37, and from the pit was raised to give bread to his brethren who had rejected him ultimately years later and to the nation nations of Gentiles around him. Jesus lay in the grave after his crucifixion and from its dark abyss was raised to give salvation to his brethren, the Jews and to millions of Gentile believers. Um, the Egyptian name of Joseph, which is Zaphath Zarephath, meant Savior of the world, but the salvation wrought by him, by Jesus, uh, by, by Jephthah. Je- let me get back up. My brain's going too fast. I've been trying to tell it to slow down. Uh, this is why I don't have any hair. My brain works so fast the neurons have burned off the hair follicles. The Egyptian name for Joseph meant the Savior of the world, but the salvation wrought by him, by Joseph just saving them physically, is hardly to be named in the same breath with that which Jesus has achieved. Joseph saved Egypt by sagacity, by smart planning, so that he anticipated the good years would be followed by the bad years, and he stored the food and was able to distribute it. Jesus saved us by substitution. Listen, you look at all the world religions, and all the world religions are saying if you do certain things, you might be able to reach up to God or heaven or the powers that be and make some brownie points and get what you want. Only Christianity says God looks down and moves down and saves us because we can't save ourselves. The Bible says all of us have sinned and come short of God's state God's standards, the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, separation from God for all eternity. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. He who knew no sin, Jesus was made to be a sin offering for us on the cross. He's paid our sin debt for us that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And then Romans 4, 5 says, but to the one who doesn't work, you don't earn this or deserve it, but to the one who doesn't work, but who believes in Christ, who justifies the ungodly. The only people who can get saved are ungodly people, right? Who admit it, right? Who recognize their guilt and their inability but to the one who does not work, but he who believes on him who justifies the ungodly, that person's faith in Jesus is reckoned as righteousness. Uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of parallels between Joseph and Jesus. But when you compare Joseph to Jesus, really, you know, it's like there's still an infinity difference. Because all Joseph's doing is prolonging their, um, their terminal human lives for a few years. And I'm all for that. But Jesus gives eternal life to everyone who will trust him for it. Um, John 3.16, God loved the world, gave his son for the world, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish. Every color, country, culture, denomination, generation who trusts in Jesus Christ receives the gift of eternal life. And it is a gift. Uh, scripture says, um, uh, John 1.12, get me started on that. Help me. Uh, yeah. Give me, yeah, yeah, okay. Let me back up. If I start in verse 9, I got it. He was in the world, Jesus, and the world was made by him, and the world didn't know him. He came unto his own, the Jewish people, and his own did not receive him. But to each one who receives him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. Uh, you're not saved by believing his name is Jesus Christ. In fact, Christ is in his name. It's a title. That means the one promised in the Old Testament to be the Lamb of God kind of thing. But you can have eternal life right where you sit. You say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. It's my fault. I can't fix it. But I dare to believe you died to pay for my sin debt and rose again from the dead. And I want you to save me. I trust you to be my savior. Uh, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works. So we got nothing to brag about. However, when you trust Christ alone and God regenerates you, he doesn't just give you a get-out-of-hell-free card. He gives you the capacity now to walk with him and serve him, and he expects you to, and he calls you to. And he's going to work providentially in ways you can begin to understand and appreciate a little bit. And it will totally change the way you think about life and live your life. All right? Um, Resting in the providence of God does not dispense with the need for routine faithfulness, even in secular areas. You might think, Joseph has served Pharaoh and he's doing this for God, hoping God's going to bring the family together. Family gets reconciled, they get set up in Egypt, they're going to ride out the famine and more. And you might think Joseph starts coasting. He works just as hard six days a week as he did any other time because he knew that was an important part of his walk as a believer. And, and God works providentially um, through the routine faithfulness of believers and not just at church on Sundays and Wednesdays, but out in the real world and even on prom night, right? So we've seen these two principles as we close. Number one, that... Um, Resting in the promise of God does not dispense with personal initiative, but allows us to accept our blessings without being too self-impressed and to deal with our issues without dissolving into self-pity. And resting in the promise of God uh, doesn't mean we should not be, and we're called to be, routinely faithful even in so-called secular areas because God's in the Lordship of Christ applies to every area of life, not just to your church attendance and that kind of thing, right? You don't leave your Christian life exclusively in church although I do think church is an important part of that so thinking about the promise of God you know Sonia sings the psalm but it turns out Spurgeon the British preacher is the guy that said it first and they put it to, song, to town uh, to, 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 to music to town when you can't see God's hand trust his heart and I love that we are called to walk by faith and not by sight and I think that mosaic illustration at least helps me Sometimes all you can see are a couple of pieces, they don't seem to fit together, and they don't even look pretty at all. They look horrible, look ugly. But if you back away and see the whole picture, and God always knows the whole picture, it all makes sense, right? I think that's very important as you're trying to to do this the right way. So I would just go back to where we started But let me start this way. You know, he said, if we believe in the promises of God, should we just quit our job and depend on a paycheck to show up on a kitchen, a kitchen cabinet, or a counter, I should say? I'm going to say no. And let me let me land the plane by saying this. Is God one, was the reason for me to ask this. Is God one or is God three? What are you going to say? He's both. We believe, we believe he's both. There's one God and three persons. Is Jesus the Son of God or is Jesus the Son of Man? He's both. Is God sovereign and does his providence express itself in everything that happens? Or are we supposed to walk worthy of our Christian faith? Are we, as James says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Which doesn't mean work for it, but it means work out like it's important because it's God at work to will and to do his good pleasure in, through Sonia's life, not just through James Mitchell or Brad McCoy because we happen to be ministers. Which one's true? Does God have a sovereign providence that's always working? Or are we supposed to show initiative in walking worthy, in uh, working out our salvation to its intended effects, right? Both, both things are happening at all times. And I think that a real, solid, clear faith in the promise of God can be a lifesaver, literally, keeping you from freaking out when things are going wrong, even though you're still going to hurt. Listen, if I don't care how spiritual you are, Michelle. I don't care how much you believe in the sovereign promise of God. If you get cut, you're going to bleed. And if you suffer loss, you're going to grieve. That's just the human condition, okay? Uh, Jesus on the cross, you know, we're told, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith, who for joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. He was not having a lot of fun up there. How could he? He was despising the shame. Uh, sometimes people will say and do things to you that just are, are terrible. Sometimes uh, uh, people you love will move or die on you or get old. Of course, you saying you're not getting older, you're just getting wiser and better, right? You know that. But uh, yeah, I think the, the promise of God is something It's not stressed enough, but the, the Joseph story just screams at you, that it's, it's, it's always at work, and it can be uh, a game changer in the way we think about our lives. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I praise you because you are sovereign over all things, and we see it so clearly as we read this story about Joseph, and sometimes we don't see it can't see it or just refuse to consider it when we're in the middle of a pit, when we're thrown into the pits of life. Help us to kind of predecide or redecide today to embrace that truth and not have a spiritual limp, but a spiritual walk, even through the, the valley of the shadow. So we believe in your providence. We're going to rest in the fact you manage all things according to the counsel of your will. And now we, we pray that you'd enable us to rest in that And to work out our salvation in ways that are pleasing to you as the effect of your saving grace. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.